Yeah, so recently, uh, my wife, uh, Darian, and I had an opportunity to go uh, to Canlis. So it was a gift card that we had. Um, and I, I don't know if you know anything about Canlis. It's like one of the fanciest restaurants in Seattle. Like, and I am a self-professed food snob. Um, now, not so much that I, you can't invite me over for dinner. Like, I'll eat whatever's in front of me. Like, I'm like, just so you know, like, please invite us over. But no, like, I'll, I'll eat whatever's put in front of me. I'm not going to be like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I only eat foie gras, if you know what that is. That's, that's that. Okay, I'm not that. But I do like a good meal. Raised in a family of chefs, which you, many of you know. Um, but let me tell you something, Canlis, now I had really, really high expectations. Like when you are going to a spot like that, like when it's, everybody tells you it's this, like you, it, it better be there. And let me tell you, it did not disappoint. My expectations were blown away. Like everything was perfect. Service, the view, the meal. Obviously, the, the guests and my company was the best, but it was amazing, okay? So, it was just perfection. What I was looking for in that meal was completely fulfilled what I was longing for. It was, air, it was able to carry the weight of my expectations. Now, a similar experience happened when I was watching the most recent Spider-Man movie. Now, my son's wearing Spider-Man costume. That was not planned. But some, another kid was wearing Spider-Man. I wasn't sure I was going to say this, but now I have to because I saw so much Spider-Man. Okay, so Spider-Man, always been my favorite. Like growing up, middle school, that was my go-to comic. I loved Spider-Man. And this, that movie like put everything together. Like there were moments when my fist was in the air. I was on the edge of my seat. I literally cried and shed tears in that movie, okay? Like I'm like... My son, who had saw it with the students, he was watching me watch the movie because I was so involved in it. But like, far expectations were far exceeded. Like, that movie, for me, now you may not like it, but you're wrong, that's okay. That movie was able to carry the weight of my expectations. It, it was able to hold it. Now, I, th I think that this process of looking to something to fulfill looking to something that we're to satisfy what we're longing for, whether it's bread or a meal or a movie, I think this basic thing, this process, is a universal human trait. It goes something like this. We all have something that's an ultimate in our life, okay? I want you to imagine that this is, let's just say, sitting on a throne. This is the ultimate. This is the, the fulfillment of it all. Now, we look to this thing, this person, whatever, to fulfill what we long for. Now, I can tell that I'm looking to something because I'm giving my time. I'm giving my energy. I give my money, my resources, my heart. I dedicate all of myself to this thing. Okay? Now, that is what the Bible calls worship. I, I worship, I'm designed, it's not a matter of if I am worshiping something. It's only a matter of what I am worshiping. We, nobody can say nothing's on the throne. All of us have placed various things on that throne. We look to something. But we don't just look to it just because we think it's a good idea. 
We look to something because we think it's going to satisfy our, what we're longing for. It's going to meet the expectations of what I am worshiping. So, and I think what we're longing for at a deep human level can be best labeled in three different ways. I think it's identity, which is trying to ask the question, who am I? I think we're longing for uh, what I'll say satisfaction. What fills me? What makes me important? And the third one is purpose. The age-old question of why am I here? So, something is on the throne. I look to it to give me what I am longing for. And oftentimes, these good things that are on the throne, they're good things. But often, unfortunately, unless it's God himself, those good things can become ultimate things. This is what the Bible calls idolatry, or the thing that's on the throne would be considered an idol. Now, we could be longing for purpose, and that's a good longing. That's, what, that's part of what it means to be created in the image of God with eternity written on our hearts. But we could think that our job is the way that gives us that purpose. So we give our time, working 80 hours plus a week. We spend our money, give our heart, work towards climbing whatever ladder it may be. Because if I attain that nebulous idea of, quote, success then my satisfaction will be met. That thing could be our family. It could be your children. It could be friendships. Everything. But eventually, what we'll discover is that those things that are on the throne don't have the ability to carry the weight of our worship. At some point, it may not be immediately, but at some point, they will let us down. At some point, we have to realize that what I expected from it did not live up to the hype. Now, the crowds following Jesus in this passage are becoming larger, and they're carrying a lot more expectations on him. Now, he's been gradually, up to this point, revealing more about his nature bit by bit. And yet... Some of them, as he continues to reveal who he is, not just what he does, they have some unrealistic and unfulfilled expectations. So, we're in the middle of a series called Reframing Jesus, getting fresh portraits of the person and work of Jesus through the Gospel of John. Now, we're in the middle of this section of the book that's really right in the middle of two chunks of this. So, chapters 2 through 12 is called the Book of Signs, where Jesus gives, gives seven signs, seven miraculous events, of which we find one of them today, which is the feeding of the 5,000. One of the only miracles and one of the only stories that's found in all four Gospel accounts. We can assume that John knows the other Gospel accounts. He's not writing like, out of the thin air. He knows it, but yet he still includes this, even though three other people have already shared that. So it's an important thing. But it's also in the middle of a section um, that where Jesus is addressing a few really important Jewish festivals. And in addressing them, he reframes those festivals around himself. And today's story we find in verse 2, 
um, one through three, excuse me, that this was a four, right there it is. Now it was Passover. So to understand this and to understand what he means by eating my flesh and drinking my blood and all those weird sayings, we have to understand what the Exodus story is. And honestly, if we're going to be real honest, we, if we are going to understand the gospel, we have to have at least an elementary understanding of the Exodus and the Passover because it is the framework in which the, the scriptures is built off of and where we get the, the gospel. So this story is found in the book of Exodus. Crazy, right? Uh, 1 through 17. Let me give a, a quick synopsis. So God's people have been under the rule of a foreign nation called Egypt for 400 years. God's people have been crying out for help, and it was time for God to actually do something about it. So God sent a man named Moses to be a representative to, um, of his people to Pharaoh, and he was demanding their release. After a series of plagues, the final one called for the death of all the firstborn of Egypt while protecting the people of Israel because of the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. The lamb was to die, so God's people didn't have to die. They were then released from captivity to go towards a promised land. And on the way to the promised land, they were led through a body of water. Okay? There was a Red Sea. What did God do? He split the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. Their enemies were trying to follow them. God closed it up and took care of the enemies. Now, while on the way to the promised land, they were hungry and they were thirsty. So God provided bread from heaven called manna. Now, they were instructed to take the food and eat it enough for each day or it would spoil and they were given water to drink from while all miraculous signs of God providing for his people until they got to the place where they were on their way to go. Now, to summarize this whole passage, what Jesus does here is absolutely magnificent. He takes all of these very significant Passover elements and he says they're all about him. He in essence, everything about what God has been doing in Passover points to Jesus. He is the better and greater Moses who leads God's people out of captivity. He forms them into his new people and he leads them to the promised land of his kingdom. As we saw earlier in John, he is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And we see in this passage, he doesn't just lead people through the water, he actually in this walks on top of the water. Water in their understanding was all of the disorder and chaos of the world. The sea was a picture of chaos and evil and disorder. And for, for Jesus to not only split it, but to walk on top of it in this passage was saying, hey, I'm the Lord of even the most chaotic things that's going on in this world. And in this passage, I'm going to read 32 through 35, manna also points to him. It says this, Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What we hunger and thirst for can only be found in Jesus. He is the only one who has the ability to sit on the throne in our hearts. He's the only one that can hold the weight of our worship. And he is the only one that has the ability to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. So Jesus has gone from telling the woman at the well that he is the Messiah. Then the next chapter, he claims to be equal with God. And now he's taking their nation-binding, beloved festival and making it all about himself. Now, for if you have an understanding of the scripture and where it's going, that's really not the surprising part to this passage. What's surprising is the ways in which people respond to it. And the way that they respond is often the ways that we can respond when we miss when what he offers we use to our own gain. So there's four different ways in which people respond to Jesus claiming to be the bread of life. The first one is they look they follow him for signs. So let me read verse 2 again. It says uh, the large crowd was following him because they saw, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, me not just because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In essence, this is a group of people that were following Jesus not because of who he was, but because of what they got out of it. In our day, there's a lot of talk about the dangers of the prosperity gospel. Now, in essence, just to really quickly summarize it, like God blesses you with stuff, with money, with resources, and whatever, if you obey him and have enough, quote, faith. Often this is a purely materialistic notion of God's kingdom. But I believe there's a really sneaky and subtle way that the prosperity gospel actually plays out in our lives that we don't even give it credit for. It plays itself out in that we are expecting things from Jesus that he never promised to give us. Many of us have been sold a bill of goods that say Jesus blesses you in the way you want to be blessed when you obey. No blessing means you're not obeying. In a lot of ways, I call this vending machine Jesus. You go, you do enough good, you pay the bill, and you, you press the buttons, and you expect to get in return what you want. And so when you don't get what you want, it's as if something's wrong with God. What you're, you're putting in your time being, quote, faithful, but you're doing it to get something in return. You follow Jesus because it works for you. 
You follow Jesus because you're getting that thing that you desire. It could be something good, actually. It could be a better marriage. It could be a better family. And so you are, I'm going to follow Jesus because of this. And really subtly, you take the one who's supposed to be on the throne and you, you put the implications or you put the results on the throne. And so the question is, what happens when all those things don't go the way you want them to? What happens when following Jesus leads you to be ridiculed or pushed aside? Often, it's not Jesus that's on the throne when we are following him for his stuff. It's the stuff that's on the throne. And like I said, it can be really subtle. It can be really, really good things. Do I believe that following Jesus allows for those things? Absolutely. Do I think that that following Jesus and the way that he's designed the world, the implications or the outcome of that will be a more satisfied life? Yes. But if we're doing it for that rather than for him, it's, it's a form of the prosperity gospel. Are you in it only for what Jesus offers you? Are you following Jesus? Are you going about your spiritual journey? Are you checking the boxes, not because of him, but because of his stuff? Because you, like they, had your, you ate your fill of loaves. There's also a second group here. So the first group are following him for signs because of what he offers. The second group are those that are trying to force him to rule. Look at verse 15 again. Perce- oh, I'm going to start in 14, actually. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So these people had really high expectations for a Messianic leader. Okay? They expected him to come and overtake the physical rule of Egypt, excuse me, of Rome. They thought the Messiah would bring in a new exodus that would establish a new nation state. Now, what these people were doing, they were trying to force him to rule. They saw him as the fulfillment of Moses. But they zoned in on that and they took their understanding of what it would look like and forced Jesus to fit that box. What they, they saw his work, they perceived Jesus for who they want him to be, not for who he fully and really was. They saw a part of him, but they ignored the whole of him and he ended up becoming the poster boy of their posturing. The people in this story focus on a specific aspect of what Jesus is doing and then only focus on that. They've they've seen his work, but they co-opt him from being Lord of all to a figure standing for what they want him to fight for. In a lot of ways, this is similar to what we see happening around us in what many call the culture wars. Take any specific cause. 
could be a good cause even, a religious cause, a holy cause. But then Jesus becomes the poster child of that cause. The problem is when we see everything through the lens of culture wars, we tend to want to focus on a cause and force fit Jesus to fit that role. We co-opt him. We want to force him to rule in that way. We aren't respecting the fullness of Jesus and what he's revealed. We tend to focus on just a part of it. Are they good? Sure. Those aren't bad things. But the problem is when we co-opt him and the gospel to fulfill a specific thing rather than the fullness of what he's come to fulfill. So do you force Jesus to rule, quote-unquote, in the way that you want him to? Is he a poster child of your cause? The third group of people are those that are grumbling over the past. So we have those that are trying to force him to rule, those that are forcing to follow just because of what they are get. But then there's this third group, and you see them in verses 41 through 43 and 61. Now, like those in the wilderness of the Exodus, they complained and grumbled that Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. Now, not only that, they had a really skewed view of the past. So the people of Israel, when they were uh, in their exodus, they would look back at Egypt and they would grumble and complain and then they would say, oh man, we were able to eat the best food when we were in Egypt. It was so good, quote unquote, back then. Like, I want to go back to the glory days because the glory days were so amazing. Here's the problem. They were working as slaves in their, quote, glory days. They, this was not like the, the good, but be, they, because of what they were experiencing did not live up to their expectations, their skewed view of the past made them long for what once was, not what is truly there. They grumbled, they complained, they forgot the harsh rule of a foreign king. They forgot and didn't see that God was providing bread for them from heaven. Now, there's lots of ways that this could be fleshed out for those of us today. There could be, what, what are the glory days in your heart? When, what, when did you have it the best? When, did the church, when was the church, big C, little c, this, like all God's church, or even your local church here in Soma, when was it exactly what you wanted it to be? For some, it's before you actually met Jesus. It's like, man, do you remember those days when I could just do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want? Those are good. Like, you, you look back and you forget that those sinful practices is actually slavery. Just like, the, just like those here. You look back, man, that was so fun. It was so amazing. Yeah, but you were living enslaved to sin. You, weren't offer you didn't have the fulfilled life that Jesus offered. It could be pre-COVID for some of us, right? Like, man, it was just so good pre-COVID. Everything was just so, so much easier back then. Can't we just go back to that? 
For some, and I'll put myself in this box for a moment, for some it's what I'll call pre-mission. I was trained and um, equipped as a leader in a church, but also in an environment of churches where it was all about big, flashy, better. And in many ways, it was designed to, to stroke the ego of the leader. And as the leader, that sounded kind of nice. <laughs> like, yeah, look at, look at me, look at me moments. And then I was, my eyes were open to the idea of mission in everyday life, disciple-making. The, 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 the um, spontaneous expansion of the gospel. And it's way harder than I want to admit. It's, it's not like smooth sailing. And there are times when I'm like, man, I wish I didn't take that pill. Like, man, I wish I didn't really get that. Man, I wish I could just go back to before I knew this. Because it was so much quote-unquote easier. And I know this, that if I would have done that, it would have killed me. It would have ruined my soul. It would have, it, and this is my story. I'm not saying this is everybody's story. This is me. It would have, uh, I would have been put in opportunities where the worst parts of my soul were fostered and not healed. But man, does it look good sometimes. It's like, oh, I wish I could go back to that. That would be so much easier. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what your glory days are. I don't know what it was if you were to grumble over what currently is versus what your version of the past is. But that's a response that we see from Jesus, or to Jesus. And then there's the last one, and I'll close with this. This is the response of the disciples, verse 68 through 69. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Remember, people have just been leaving. And what does Simon Peter, the loudmouth, say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a picture of true faith. Others have turned their back when they don't get what they want. Others have left because Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations of the type of king he should be. Other people had such a skewed view of the past that they went backwards to follow what they wanted. But at this point, the disciples stayed the course. And it's because they realized the fullness of who he was. What does he say? The Holy One of God. Not the caricature that fits a cause or the poster boy. Not the vending machine that pays us for our obedience. But the Lord of the world. They've given their desires over to him. They know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. They know that he is Lord, the Holy One of God.